Our text this morning is the end of Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 45. We'll be looking at Luke 20, 45 through 21, 4. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at, the, at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. Uh, Father, as we come to your word, we ask that you would help us now, that you would take this word and that it would do its work as you tell us it does, like a two-edged sword that cuts through bone and marrow and even gets down to the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Father, we know that your word can lay us bare, lay us naked before your eyes. And Father, let that produce in us a humility that looks for Christ and clings to Him. Lord, let this warning that You give this morning land on us with all the weight You meant it to have that we might run to Christ. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're to chapter 21 this morning in the Gospel of Luke. It's been a what might seem like a long journey, but when we're diving into the life of Christ, we're looking at uh, all that, Luke had uh, for Theophilus all that he wanted him to know about the life of Christ. Uh, we're drawn to the end, the last uh, few chapters, and Christ, even as he comes to the cross, is still ministering, still warning, still teaching his disciples, still in a sense warning even his enemies that they might have time to repent and trust him. And one of the themes that runs from the beginning of Luke all the way through is this idea that God will punish the proud but give grace to the humble. Remember Mary's song in Luke chapter 1? singing about this son that she's been promised. In verse 46, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, 
for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. His mercy is for those who fear him. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Our God is a God who sees this world differently than man sees this world. Our God loves different things, chooses different people than who anyone else would choose. The mighty and the proud, He will lay low. But those who tremble at His Word, those who fear Him, those who are poor in spirit, He will exalt those. That's who His mercy is for. And so Luke strikes a theme that's all throughout the Scripture. Isaiah 66, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne. Have you ever looked up into the heavens? Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. So God points to His greatness, His transcendence, and then He says this, but this is the one to whom I'll look. Who's this God whose heaven is His throne and earth is the footstool? Who is He going to look? Who, who, to whom is He going to look upon and whom is He going to consider? But this is the one to whom I'll look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Or Isaiah 57.15 For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy places and also with him who is contrite and lowly, who, who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. Or Psalm 51.16, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering, but the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken contrite heart, O God you will not despise. 
Or Isaiah 2.10, enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty. The haughty looks of man will be brought low and the lofty pride of man shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. The Lord has a day where all the pride, all those who are proud and haughty, all those who didn't tremble at His word, in that day, God alone will be exalted as they are brought down from their high places. Heaven is filled with people who know they don't deserve it. And hell is filled with people that are sure they deserve it and are going to end up there. Psalm 40, verse 4, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, who does not go astray after a lie. Does your heart tend to follow the proud in this world? The mighty, the impressive, those who are brilliant? Does your heart tend to put your trust in the greatness of man, blessed is the man who makes his trust in the Lord. The last example I'll give as way of intro is from Second Chronicles 26.4. What a warning this is. Uzziah, the king who did well at first, here's what it says. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father Amazah had done. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. He went out and made war against the Philistines and broke through the wall of Gath and the wall of Jebunah and the wall of Ashdod. And he built cities in the territory of Ashdod and elsewhere among the Philistines. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gerbal and against the Muonites. The Amorites paid tribute to Uzziah and his fame spread even to the border of Egypt for he became very strong. Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem and at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the angle and fortified them. And then in verse 14, and Uzziah prepared for all the army shields and spears and helmets and coats of mail and bows and stones for slinging. In Jerusalem, he made machines invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and great stones. And his fame spread far, for he was marvel marvelously helped 
until he was strong. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense, which no king should do. And he got leprosy and he died with leprosy. And his life is a warning. No longer did he tremble at God's word. He'd become so famous, so high and mighty, so looked up to, he thought he could burn incense when the priest was to burn incense. And in this text, it's a warning text. I told Scott this morning, it's a heavy text. Where's the gospel here? It's heavy. It's a warning against hypocrisy. It's a text that was convicting and heart-searching as I prepared it. Jesus hates hypocrisy. If you read Luke, you just have to see it. And the drive of this message is this. Beware of hypocrisy. Humbly give your life to Christ. And we're going to see in this text the DNA of hypocrisy in the scribes. We're going to see how they pretend to love God, but really love the praise of man and really love money. Which is a warning that we need to hear. Can your heart tend towards the praise of man? And can your heart tend towards the things of this earth? If so, then lean in to the warning. Look at verse 45. And in the hearing of all the people, He said to His disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. So let's consider what he's doing. They just tried to trap him. The Pharisees have tried to trap him. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? The Sadducees tried to trap him with the story of the lady who marries six different brothers. They don't believe in the resurrection. Both both of them have been proven to not understand the Scriptures. They don't know the Scripture that they claim to know. And now Jesus is warning everyone in the crowd to beware of these false teachers, these hypocrites. He says, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in Long robes. So long robes with tassels on the end uh, portrayed a sense of uh, spirituality, holiness. The longer your tassels were, the Pharisees thought, the more it showed how godly they were. This is what they like. 
They like to walk out into the crowds and show their righteousness before other people. They love to see the way the people look at their garments and see their holiness and maybe bow to them a little bit and call them rabbi or teacher. They loved it. This is what they liked. In Matthew 23, 5, Jesus said, they do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. That's why they do what they do. Why do you do what you do? Would you do it if no one knew it? Do you do your service to be seen by others? Or will you only do your service as long as people appreciate it? And if they don't appreciate it, then you don't want to do it anymore. Because you're doing it to be seen, to, to receive a pingback that feels good. And if you don't receive that, that hurts. And so I'm done serving. How many people struggle with the praise of man? How many people struggle with hypocritical lives? This is what I'm going to project out so people think this of me. But behind closed doors, there's not integrity. There's a double life that's there. That's what Jesus is warning about. He says they love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. They just love their high position and praise they get before men. In Matthew 23, 27, Jesus says, Woe to the scribes and the Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. In Luke 11, in verse 42, he's warned the Pharisees. He says, but woe to you Pharisees, you tithe mint rue, uh, and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the other. So they did all these outward things that people said, look at that, even their dill. They take 10% of every little tiny piece of dill. Boy, that person must be godly. And yet they could care less about justice or love. In Luke 6.24, Jesus warned, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Beware! Everybody thinks well of you. 
Beware when everyone just has good to say about you, for that was just what the false prophets had as well. It's a real warning. In fact, half the Sermon on the Mount is about this very point. In Matthew 6, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people to be seen by them. For then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. He says, don't pray long prayers out in front of people to be seen by them, for then you have your reward for your Father who sees in secret. He will reward you. Don't worry about the praise of man and what is seen. If that's what you worry about, then fine. You're going to get your reward here and not there. The human heart, the reason why Facebook and all the social media, what makes them go? It's that little like button. You put a picture on and 42 people said, woohoo, I like that. And that feels so good. And yet, hours and hours looking at this and so little time in God's Word. Why? What are we after? What do we want? Why our best pictures on our best days? What are we after? What's our heart longing for? Half the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying you have no clue how gracious and wonderful and rewarding my Father is because if you knew that, you wouldn't worry about how you look in the eyes of other people. This was such a big thing for the scribes that in the Mishnah, which is the first major written collection of the Jewish oral uh, traditions, it was called the or Oral Torah. Here's what it says about rabbis, how, how important it is these scribes, uh, how they're to be treated. It says, it is more culpable to transgress the words of the scribes than those of the Torah. The first five books of the Old Testament. It's more culpable to transgress the words of the scribes. We have no idea how high they saw themselves. In fact, Alfred Edersheim, who... Uh, wrote the book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, helps us understand the history, spoke uh, of, th of this most blasphemous example of how high they viewed themselves. Here's what he writes. Perhaps the climax of blasphemous self-assertion is reached in the story that in a discussion between in heaven between God and the heavenly academy on the halahic question about purity. <laughs> so, so this is the part of the oral law that answers all the questions about purity. So there's a discussion that God's having with the academy and they can't figure it out. 
A certain rabbi deemed most learned on the subject was summoned to decide the point. As his soul passed from the body, he exclaimed, pure, pure, which is the voice from heaven, which the voice from heaven applied to the state of the rabbi's soul. And immediately afterwards, a letter had fallen from heaven to inform the sages of the purpose of which the rabbi had been summoned to the heavenly assembly. And afterward, another enjoining, uh, another enjoining a week's universal mourning for him on the pain of his excommunication. <laughs> so it's a story of God can't figure this out. A rabbi gets called up to heaven. And God drops a book down and explains why he had to call him up there. He had need of him. And then he drops another book down to tell them that you need to mourn because you don't have him on earth. His wisdom. This time while he's in heaven. This is pride among, uh, pride above all pride that we can imagine. And so think about what Jesus is doing. Beware of them. Ooh. The one you're supposed to bow down to, the one you're supposed to look up to, Jesus says they're hypocrites. They don't do it for the glory of God. They do it for the praise of men. And then in verse 47, look at, look at what he says. Who devour widows' houses. How did they do that? They took advantage of their hospitality for one. They were poor. They almost had no money. And they would rely on them for meals. They would take advantage of their hospitality. They cheated them out of their estates. They mismanaged their property. They took their houses as pledges for debts they could never repay. Daryl, according to Daryl Bach. These are people that look so godly and yet are willing to steal from the most vulnerable on earth. That's how much they loved money. Matthew 6, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one or love the other. Or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Here's what Jesus teaches. Store up treasure in heaven. And he says, the eye is the light of the body. What do your eyes set themselves on? Things on this earth? Is that where your hope is? The things down here? Because if that's what your eyes see, your whole life will be full of darkness. It matters what you're passionate about. It matters where you set your treasure And then in Luke 16, 13, he says, 
No servant can serve two masters. You'll either hate the one or love the other, be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. And then he says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourself before men. There it is again. But God knows your hearts for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. What this world praises is an abomination in the eyes of God. And the Pharisees and the scribes were lovers of money. The religious hypocrite loves the praise that comes from man. There's a lot of praise to be had in a local church, in a Christian community. There's a lot of reasons to pretend Christianity. Keep mom and dad happy. Keep the grandparents happy. There's a certain amount of respect for godly people, right? And your business might even be better if you portray it as a Christian business. But the DNA of hypocrisy, people who pretend to love God but really love the praise of man and love their money. And then we see this, they will receive the greater condemnation. This week, this commentary, J.C. Ryle's commentary, just was heavy reading it. He says, this is where we see that there's certain degrees of glory in heaven and there's certain degrees of punishment in hell. And he talked about how the heathen who's never heard the gospel, his hell will not be as hot as the one who's been given so much truth and light and yet has rejected it. Jesus says their condemnation will be greater. They have the Scriptures. They have all the opportunity to grow and to serve God's people. Here's what Ryle says. The greatest condemnation will fall on those who had great light and knowledge, but made no proper use of it. It'll fall on those who profess great sanctity in religiousness, but in reality clung to their sins. This is a text for the church. Because the hottest hell is reserved for potentially some people in this church. Because you sit under the teaching of the Word of God. If your life proves that in the end you're a hypocrite, you don't love God, it may not be Hitler that has a hotter hell than you. It's the warning among warnings to God's people, to those who have such privilege. And it's a question that all of us ought to wrestle with. Are you going to proclaim how good you are and how 
sanctified you are and cling to your own sin and your own blindness. Because the one who is high and is lifted up and whose throne is in heaven and whose the earth is his footstool, that one, the one who dwells in eternity, who will he look to? Is he going to look to you? Are you contrite of heart? Do you tremble before his word? Or do you proclaim and defend your own righteousness? That's the warning that he gives. And then look at verse 1 of chapter 21. This is a contrast text. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box and he saw a poor widow put in two copper coins. If you notice in your notes, it says, see the DNA of hypocrisy. See the DNA of God's true servant. The first thing you need to see in verse 1 is this. Jesus looked up and he saw. Proverbs 15.3 says this, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Jesus could have been thinking about his impending death. It's just, I mean, we're right here. In the last week, But Jesus looked up and he saw the rich and he saw a widow. Psalm 40, 17 says for me, says as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. If you're like the poor widow, poor and needy, but the Lord sees you, you're okay. You're okay. He sees. Hebrews 4.13, No creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed before Him who must give an account. We're all stewards. And God sees If you're a Christian, you're a steward. If you're not a Christian, you need to become a servant of Christ. You need to bow knee before your Creator. You need to bow knee before the One who died on the cross to carry your sin, to take the wrath of God upon Himself so that you can get a free gift of His perfect life and righteousness. And He can bear the punishment for your sin. You can become a child of God, a servant of Christ, a slave of Christ, an ambassador of for Christ. J.C. Ryle writes, to feel that Christ looks at what man is and what are, to feel that Christ looks at what man is and not what man has will help preserve us from envious and murmuring thoughts. See, God, when He looks and He sees the rich putting in their gifts 
and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins, pennies. And what does Jesus say of her? He said, truly I tell you, this poor widow is put in more than all of them. If you're going to read the text literally, it means everyone that's been putting in, she put in more than them. You say, well, she didn't put in as much money. No, she didn't put in as much money. But God looks at this world with different eyes than we look at this world, doesn't He? God sees it differently. What man praises is an abomination before God. And Jesus says, Jesus weighs what she puts in and says she put in more. So what does this mean? One commentator, Marshall, says this, what matters is not the amount that one gives, but the amount that one keeps for himself. Alfred Morris says this, Jesus' words have taken literally mean not more than any one of them, but more than all of them put together. If the measure be what is left over after giving, she certainly outdistanced them all. For she gave, for they all gave out of their abundance and thus had much left over, but she gave all she had. This is a real sacrifice. The idea here is she gave probably her only daily wage and she was living from hand to mouth and all she had that day was that daily wage and that's what she gave and she had zero left over. Stein says this, the exact point of the story, however, is not as clear as first appears. Several suggestions have been made. One, the measure of one's gift does not involve how much one gives, but how much remains, how much one keeps. Second, A gift is measured by the spirit in which it is given. Third, one's giving should be uh, consumerate with one's uh, means. And fourth, true giving involves giving all of what one has. And in a sense, that's what Christ has already called for, right? Jesus doesn't ask for a certain amount of your money. Because whose money is it? It's his money. You're a steward of your life. Remember the man who built barns for himself? So he could store up well? His soul is going to be accounted back from him. We don't even own our life. Let alone the time we have, the money we have. And what does Christ ask for? He wants to follow me. Let him deny himself and follow me. Let him lose his life. What did Peter, the greatest catch he ever had, the best day of fishing he ever had, he left on the shore and followed Christ. Matthew, the tax collector, did the same thing. So the question is this. Have you given Christ all your decisions? Have you asked him, how do you want me to handle what you've given to me? 
Do you love me? Do you love me? Are you going to hang on to this world? I just want to read a few paragraphs from Ryle here. He published this in 1858. He says, the subject before us is peculiar. I'm not going to be able to say that word. Peculiarly (laughs) heart-searching. On no point perhaps do professing Christians come short so much as in the matter of giving money to God's cause. Thousands, it may be feared, knowing nothing whatsoever of giving as a Christian duty. The little giving that there is is confined entirely to a select few in the churches. Even among those who give, it may be boldly asserted that the poor generally give far more in proportion to their means than the rich. These are the plain facts which cannot be denied. The experience of all who collect for religious societies and Christian charities will testify that they are correct and true. I just talked to someone this week that they they know someone that delivers pizza and the great majority of their tips come from the poorest parts of Aberdeen. Not what you would expect. And then Ryle says, let us judge ourselves in this matter of giving that we may not be judged and condemned at the great day. So let's just take weight in this. He says, take time to judge yourself so that you don't get to the end of your life. Let it be, set, let it be a settled principle with us to watch against stinginess and whatever else we do with our money to give regularly and habitually to the cause of God. Let us remember that although Christ's work does not depend on our money, yet Christ is pleased to test the reality of our grace by allowing us to help Him. If we cannot find it in our hearts to give anything to Christ's cause, we may dwell, we may well doubt the reality of our faith and charity. Let us recollect that our use of money, of the money of God that God has given us will have to be accounted for on the last day. The judge of all will be he who noticed the widow, widow's might. Our incomes and expenditures will be brought to light before the assembled world. If we prove in that day to have been rich towards ourselves, but poor towards God, it would be good if we had never been born. Not least, let us look around the world and ask, where are the men that were ruined by liberal giving to godly purposes and whoever found themselves really poorer by lending to the Lord? We shall find that the words of Solomon are strictly true. And then he quotes Proverbs 11.24. One gives freely, yet grows richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. And so within this text, there's the question of, am I a hypocrite? And then there's the test with financial means. Do we really believe in the eternal? Do you really believe that your life is a mist down here and all this will be gone and that you actually can use 
your ungodly mammon, your, your, the money down here on earth, we can actually get transferred into treasure in heaven that'll last forever. You see, if we really believe the gospel, we really believe that praise from God is much better than praise from men, then how would our lives look different? In Luke 12, you have the rich man who builds these barns. He says, I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid, laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. I had the privilege to go to Gary Wallman's funeral, Pastor Gary at the Assembly of God's Church. He's a man that I've always respected from afar. My uh, limited times I had contact with him and I'd run into him at Culver's a lot of times on a Sunday afternoon. And he was always, him and his wife, Joni, were always so encouraging to us. They'd put their arm around us and ask how we're doing. And, and there was just something about him. I could tell he was a leader. I, and uh, I could tell he was authentic. And that was confirmed at his fun funeral. And I couldn't help but go back and watch his last sermon that he preached. So he was on a ventilator. He died of COVID. Uh, he's on a ventilator for four weeks. So I went back to August 15th and I listened to the sermon. And it was about the rich young ruler wondering what he must do uh, to inherit eternal life. At the end of his sermon, as he was asking people to give their lives to Christ, to not hold on to things on earth, he said, I had a friend of mine that used to say, the flowers of your funeral might already be in bloom. He says this at the end of his sermon. He's saying, consider the way you're living your life. Are you ready to see Christ? Do you love Him and not the things of this world? Because the flowers for your funeral could already be in bloom. And then the very last line he ever preached before his final prayer was this. He says, if you've been serving Jesus all your life and the end is drawing near, a thousand times over you'll say, it was worth it. It's the last line he preached. And his sons stood up there and talked about how their dad was a mentor, not just a preacher up front, but he mentored people. And when they were teenagers, he came to them and he says, you know, I'm, I'm mentoring, I'm counseling all these people. And I realized it could be really easy for me to miss it with my own family. So he set a time. Nine o'clock, he took the younger son, and he spent an hour with him. And he would 
mentoring him in the things of God. And then at 10 o'clock, he took his older son. And Gary Wildman did not waste his life. It was worth it. And when he was on the ventilator, and he couldn't talk to his family, but he could see him sitting there, he called the nurse over, and he asked for a piece of paper and a pen. And he wrote a note, and they flashed the note up on the screen at the funeral. And here's what the note said. It said, oh, I thought I had it here. Yeah. The first thing, it said, I'll see you again. As he's laying there, he evidently knew he didn't think he was going to make it. He says, I'll see you again. I love you all very much. Serve Jesus. What else are you going to say when you're at that point? But you're going to look at all them and you want them to know because there's a lot of mourning coming. I'm going to see you again. Eternity is for real. It's for real. Though you die, yet shall you live. Those who believe in me shall never die in that way. And he believed it and he wanted his family to believe it. And he wanted them to know I love you all very much. And then he said, serve Jesus. And then you'll get to the end of your life. Like the last line of a sermon, you'll say, it was worth it. It was worth it. Are you living your life in a foolish way that you would be ashamed of if the flowers for your funeral were already in bloom today? If so, I got good news for you. We have a Savior that came for sinners. He didn't come for good ones. He came for broken ones who have a contrite heart and say there's no hope in and of me, myself. My only hope is in a Savior that can take my sins, give me the righteousness I need. So if you're sitting here today and you say, I know that's me. Maybe you are a Christian, but you've lost focus. Humble yourself today. Give God your whole life, your time. Love God and love people. Husbands, I don't care how important your business seems. Your wives and your children and your neighbors see what's important. Wives, children, same thing. Let's not be enamored by the things that will be gone. Father, thank you for this warning from Christ. Still serving He's going to a cross, still teaching, still thinking about us, still warning his enemies. Father, we, you are such a gracious God. Father, we all need your mercy. So let us tremble before you. Let us never lose sight of who you are and who we are. Lord, I pray that there'd be no one here that would have any comfort apart from giving their life to Jesus Christ. 
pray this in Christ's name. Amen.